Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you love the Intelligence Squad podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Dr. Julia Shaw explores the hidden world of bisexuality, the history of the B in LGBT, and why the largest sexual minority is so misunderstood. Hit subscribe on Apple Premium to check out our Q&A with the world's most influential psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, and you'll be directly supporting us in continuing what we do, bringing you deep discussions, smart debates, and asking the big questions. Now back to today. Our host today is Sharon Daliwal, writer, speaker, and founder of the UK's leading South Asian culture magazine, Burnt Roadie. Here's Sharon with more. Bisexuality is the world's largest sexual minority, but it remains the least understood. How much do we know about bisexual history? How many famous bisexual people can you name? How often is bisexuality represented in society, from politics to pop culture? Dr. Julia Shaw is a criminal psychologist at UCL and part of the queer politics think tank at Princeton University. Over the years, she has noticed the serious lack of information on bisexuality and set out to find answers for herself. In her new book, By the Hidden Culture, History and Science of Bisexuality, Julia explores the history of bisexuality, whether or not there is such a thing as a bi-gene, and the murky legality of being bisexual in some countries. She joins me now. Julia, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi. Congratulations on your book. It's amazing. Well-researched and just a fascinating read. How was the process of collecting all that research for you? It was difficult. I am bisexual and I'm a scientist. And so my brain naturally goes to what are the studies? (laughs) What does science say about all of this? And I... I found it really difficult to know the language of scholarship around bisexuality because a lot of it's hidden in words like men who have sex with men or plurisexual. That was a term I only ever saw in in the literature. And so if you don't know those words, Google Scholar is not going to help you find those studies, right? And so it was difficult to find. But then when I did learn the language of queer history and queer scholarship, I suddenly found quite a lot, actually. And I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of research that's been done on bi plus people. So it was almost a wall you had to get through. It was, and it was incredibly hidden. So I think if you talk to most bisexual people or people in general about bisexuality, they don't know what the role is of bi people in history. We can't really name activists who, you know, made queer 
pride happen and who worked on important legal strides that have been made when it comes to queer rights. So I think for me, it was also a process of bringing those people out of the shadows and myself meeting them, but then also allowing me to introduce those people, those researchers, those activists to a wider audience. And so this book is like an atlas of bisexuality and bisexual research as a, a guide to everything by. On that note, actually, reading your book, I learned about Brenda Howard because of you. I've never heard of Brenda Howard before. And I kind of want to talk about her more because I think it is important that we bring people to the forefront. So do you want to tell us a bit about Brenda Howard? Brenda Howard is sometimes called the mother of pride. And she was a Jewish bi activist who was really active in the 1960s and then 1970s and 80s as well, uh, and into the 90s uh, in terms of bi inclusion and queer spaces. So she was a bi activist before. And then when Stonewall happened, when the Stonewall riots happened in 1969, she was one of the key players in organizing the first Pride March a month later and then a year later. And uh, the reason we have Pride Month is because Brenda Howard said, well, we should have Pride Month. <laughs> so it sort of expanded. It was you know, first the marches, then it was a week, then it was a month. And a lot of that is down to Brenda Howard. Although we have to be careful not to mythologize her either, because people like Lani Kaumanu, for example, was also influential in this kind of work. It's not one person, of course, who made Pride happen, but it's important not to undermine and also the role of bisexual people in creating these cultural iconic moments and movements that we're familiar with. I, I find it really interesting because I like to learn more about queer history and I haven't come across Brenda Howard and I find that really fascinating. Do you think there is a lot there in erasing bi history? Certainly. There's a lot of erasure and there's a lot of obscuring. So part of it is a lack of knowledge and a, sometimes because by stories haven't been told previously, it can just be very difficult to find them. So it's less of a, an intentional hiding of by story sometimes, but it's also which stories were seen as important at the time. So the reason that we don't know these stories is because there's been a long history of seeing bisexuality as a bit complicated, not as a, a concept, but more as making the binary between heterosexual and homosexual behavior and saying sort of, oh, well, there's actually people who engage in both of those types, hence bi, meaning a combination of homosexual and heterosexual attractions. And of course, it's its own thing. And that made it difficult in some people's minds to fight for queer rights, because, for example, the assumptions that come with bisexuality include things like you can't be monogamous. And well, does that mean that you are attracted to everybody? And we you know, all of these other toxic stereotypes that come along with the concept of bisexuality as breaking those binaries. And so in many ways, strategically, bisexual people were pushed out of queer spaces and they were also pushed out of heterosexual spaces or stigmatized by heterosexual spaces. And so that's what makes the bi story different than the homosexual story. Of course, there's a lot of overlap as well. Not, not trying to, you know, it's not the Oppression Olympics and there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap also in terms of the, the pride and the suffering and the, and the activism, but there are also marked differences that we shouldn't undervalue. So it's, it's important to talk about the rainbow. It's important to talk about queer people, but it's also important to talk about the different letters within that initialism, the LGBTQ plus initialism, and how different struggles affect different letters. Absolutely. And as you said as well, like the, the letter B has been in the LGBTQ plus acronym the whole time and still it's been the most silenced as well. It hasn't been the whole time, actually. Oh, it hasn't? No. Do you, do you know when, when do you think the B was included in LGBT? Oh, God, don't test me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
A bit after. (laughs) (laughs) So first it was gay rights, then it was lesbian and gay. And then the B and the T came in around the same time. And actually, in the March on Washington in 1993, that was one of the first times that LGBT was used. And the B was used in one year, and Lani Kaumanu specifically fought for the inclusion of bi in the initialism. And wasn't allowed to use bisexual. So the agreement was, okay, we'll let you have the bi, but you can't be bisexual. You need to just be bi, which is really interesting. And then it got removed again. So there was like a fight, basically, and particularly the lesbian community at the time basically said, well, do they really count as queer enough? And they're kind of sleeping with the enemy, as in especially women who are bi sleeping with men. There's been quite a few debates where the B has been included and then omitted again and then included again. And so it's like the struggle to even include it in that context. So there's some really fun queer history around, well, fun. It must have been incredibly frustrating at the time. But it's really interesting in hindsight, the history around how bisexuality has been treated within the queer community. Because you see that as well with bi people that are in heterosexual presenting relationships. You know, the people that date the opposite sex, they are treated by a lot of people within the community as just straight people. I mean, it's very difficult for a lot of them to navigate queer spaces. I've had a lot of discussions actually with bi friends that when they are in a heterosexual presenting relationship, they do kind of fear going to queer spaces. Yeah, because unfortunately there is still stigma around bisexuality in that if you're with a person of a different gender than you, that the assumption is, well, you're actually straight or you don't really fit in. And the problem is that it doesn't go away if you're dating a queer person, as in you can then present, if I, for example, was with a woman, I would present as lesbian. So the assumption immediately would be that I'm lesbian or that we are lesbian. And that would still erase my bisexuality. And then if I were to say that I'm bi, then again, you might encounter biphobia. So because we don't talk about bisexuality and because of the assumptions we make about how people present because of the relationships they happen to be in at the time, we jump to assumptions about people's sexuality. And I think a lot of the time you could just add into the conversations, especially if you don't know how somebody identifies, they are straight or bi, or they are, you know, lesbian or bi, especially if you know that that person has a history of dating multiple genders. So it's something that is like a very basic learning, I think, of inclusion. If you don't know, just open it up a bit. (laughs) Because why should you assume that they're straight? Why should you assume that they're, they're gay? You know, you can add that plurality into people's options for identities. And I wonder whether some people just wait for a conversation to like get to the point where someone opens up eventually to find out about that person's sexuality. A lot of the time people aren't going to stand around and just say, yes, I'm bisexual, which would be a strange conversation. (laughs) Well, it's also because, so bi people are the least likely among lesbian, gay and bi people. Um, Bisexual people are way less likely to be out in any context in their lives. And so we're about half as likely as gay people to or homosexual people to be out to friends and loved ones. We're even less likely to be out to colleagues. So almost no bisexual people are out in their workplaces. And that has major implications for visibility and also assumptions about how many of us there are. Because the assumption is, well, I don't know any bi people for lots of people. And it's like, yeah, you do, because <laughs> there are huge amounts of people who are bi, but you probably just don't know it. And that makes it annoying also then to constantly have to come out. But that is something that you then you have to be that person. It's like, I'm, I'm bi. I'm still bi. Like, it doesn't matter what I'm still bi. I'm currently and I'm still bisexual. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some of the the history of research that you've done in your book, in particular, because it's it's incredibly well-known and famous, uh, the Kinsey scale, but also the Klein grid as well. 
these are two different measurements almost through research on heterosexuality and homosexuality. I want to know more from you about the difference between the two and why they're important. Sure. There's actually, in some ways, three people who I like to highlight. If you're familiar at all with scholarship on sexuality, certainly human sexuality, you probably have heard of the Kinsey scale. And so Alfred Kinsey was a biologist who initially studied wasps, <laughs> like gull wasps, they're called. So he came from a completely, like, biological categorizing background. And he, because post-World War II, there was availability of funding for research on human sexuality, basically because there was a renewed interest in reproduction so that countries could rebuild, which is a positive way of saying it. There's a dark side to that, which is the like renewed focus on quote-unquote the family and nuclear families and making lots of babies. And that also reinforced some heteronormative assumptions. But when we're talking about Kinsey, that's why he had money, and that's why he was encouraged to move into this field. And he sort of fell into this whole sexuality space. And then because he wasn't coming from a moralistic background, he wasn't there to judge. He was just there to describe. And he realized basically immediately that the way that most people describe sexuality as homosexual or heterosexual didn't make any sense at all in terms of how humans actually behaved. And as he said, that the reality is one of endless intergradations between hetero and homosexual attractions and behaviors. And so he created a scale from zero to six, zero being exclusively heterosexual attractions and desires and behaviors, and six being exclusively homosexual attractions and desires, which means everything in the middle from one to five or from 0 0.1 to, because you could do, you could do any number, uh, to four points or to 5.95, um, that's all what I would consider within the spectrum of bisexuality. So it's a combination of the two. And then in terms of other researchers who were crucial to establishing this, it's I think there's this assumption that it only really started to get going with Kinsey in the late 1940s, early 50s. But really, there was another scholar called Havelock Ellis who was doing research in the late 1800s already. And he published a book called Sexual Inversion. And he did lots of interviews with bisexual people. And he called them bisexual. And he talked about bisexuality. And he didn't talk about it as an attraction to men and women. He talked about it as an attraction or a combination of homosexual and heterosexual interests. And again, it wasn't negative. And there, there were also positive assumptions that came out of that. So there's a history, a much longer history, I think, to talking about these issues, including in an academic setting, than most people realize. But you also wanted to talk about Klein. Sorry. <laughs> yes, yeah, because I find that one fascinating. So talking about the Klein grid, the Klein grid was created in the 1970s by a bisexual man and therapist and sexologist, so sex researcher, who was called Fritz Klein. And he's an American researcher. And he created the Klein grid because he found that the Kinsey scale, while useful, only measures it once. So you end up with one number from exclusively heterosexual to exclusively homosexual. And he said, actually, maybe there's more variables that we could talk about rather than just your sexual attraction, really. And so he, more explicitly than Kinsey, broke it down into this grid. And so he asked about your sexual attraction, sexual behavior, sexual fantasies, emotional preference. So whom do you like to spend your time with emotionally? Your social preference, who do you like to hang out with? What kind of lifestyle do you live? It's so like, do you live a, a lifestyle that is more associated with heterosexuality or are you plugged into like gay bars and the gay scene? And then your self-identification. And he asked about past, present, and ideal for each of these, which just adds so much complexity to the conversation about sexuality. 
Wow. So the past, present and ideal. So that would be your your past history, what you feel like presently. And then ideal, would that be like ideally how you would like to feel or how you would like to live your life? Correct. And he was interested in the ideal versus the present in particular as conversation points within therapeutic settings. So he did a lot of sexuality affirmative therapy. So for example, if you're struggling as a bisexual person, I had a call a couple of weeks ago with someone who called me, who's a GP, and she's saying, you know, I'm, I think I'm bi. And like, how do I know? And it was a really interesting conversation because it's often had at a much later age so I think we assume that like sexuality and everybody comes out when they're in their sort of late teens and that's it. And we'll, you know, you've got your label for life. And while that's true for some people, that's not true for lots of people. And specifically with bisexuality, we know that people often understand and accept their bisexual identities much later. So usually in their late 20s is sort of the first time. And so she was calling me and saying, how do I, how do I know? And how do I know this isn't just internalized societal pressures? And, you know, maybe I'm actually gay, but society's taught me I need to be with a man. And so maybe that's why I like this man. And it was so interesting. But that kind of person is exactly who the ideal versus present was for. Because then you can have that conversation of like, what have you behaved in the past? Who have you loved in the past? What are you doing in the, in the present? What would you like to be? And if there's a discord between the present and the ideal. So she's saying, well, the presently I'm attracted to all genders, but my ideal is being lesbian. Then there's a conflict and that is going to lead to being what Klein called a troubled bisexual. It can work the other way around as well, right? Like you can be heterosexual. I have a friend who filled it out, filled out the Klein grid and put the ideal as entirely bisexual, but his own behavior was entirely heterosexual. So that's also an interesting way around where like the ideal is actually being attracted to more genders than you actually are. I want to use that as like a, a party trick on some people that <laughs> I feel like need it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the whole coming out thing as well. Like I came out when I was 34 as bisexual. It took me a very, a very long time to like battle with a, a lot of understanding around it. So I, I do see that a lot as well, like later coming out because there's a, almost so much more conflict within you to be able to come to that stage. So yeah, I think I was 34. Yeah, 34 when I came out. And same for, so in terms of public coming out, I was also in my 30s, which is kind of wild because <laughs> I feel like, certainly for me, it's not like it felt like I... I don't know. I, I just, I was worried about being sexualized and I was worried about what it meant for others more than what it meant for me because I knew what I was, who I was. Uh, but also lots of people don't. And they think that, you know, if you haven't had a sexual experience with multiple genders, it doesn't count in those kinds of things, which is also wrong. Like you wouldn't expect someone who's straight to like prove it. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There is that thing that kind of like internal battle you end up having with yourself where you start doubting yourself as well. You're like, oh, oh, am I actually bisexual? Like, you know, and then you start overcompensating with the way that you act and the things that you say to try and like measure it out. It's it's a really strange kind of like battle you end up having with yourself. You overcompensate, <laughs> do a whole queer masters, queer history masters and write a whole book <laughs> just to prove that you're queer enough. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I was talking about what I post on Instagram stories, but okay. <laughs> That's amazing. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the Value Revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the Industrial Revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. Um, but like, that's the point though. Like, it's not really taken seriously, is it? Bisexuality isn't taken seriously. Whether it's within queer groups or within straight groups, people just do not take it seriously. Why do you think that is? 
Some people do, of course, but there are unfortunately enough people who don't that it uh, creates massive barriers to coming out. It creates barriers for being part of communities and not being able to be plugged into communities has knock-on effects that researchers found, including heightened risk for depression and anxiety, heightened risk for non-suicidal self-injury compared to homosexual people. You know, increased risk of loneliness, increased risk of sleeping rough. I mean, there's all these like knock-on effects of not being plugged into communities, feeling not quite a part of it and being told you're not part of anywhere, (laughs) living in that sort of in-between space, which feels kind of like nowhere, and and feeling like there's something wrong with you, which a lot of queer people can relate to, and a lot of people in general can, I'm sure, relate to. That sort of, is it me? Is it me that's wrong? And when you get asked so many times, you know, how can you possibly live your life? Like, what's it like being bi? And, you know, can you love one person? Can you be in a relationship? Can you be faithful? Can you be blah, blah, blah? It gets incredibly tiring. And I think you start thinking, is it just just me? Is it just me who loves like this and lives like this and desires like this? And it's not just you. And that's why it's so important to take it seriously. But you're right that there needs to be a lot of work done still to include the B in the LGBT plus, even just conversation. I mean, the amount of times that we just sort of jump over the B and sort of assume that talking about lesbian and gay people sort of captures it because you're like kind of half gay (laughs) 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 it's just it's wrong like there are unique aspects to bisexuality that are different from being homosexual and from being heterosexual that we need to talk about it can't just be brushed over or like considered as just like one sentence talking point and then moved away like there's so much there's so much nuance there but it also causes a lot of harm as well in the sense that when it comes to sexual assault, bisexual women uh, compared to lesbian and heterosexual women are the most likely to experience it. What are the factors that lead to this happening? So the main factor for women is what's called the hypersexualization of women. And there's lots of research at this point that has shown the various ways in which hypersexualization, which means basically seeing people predominant in terms of sex rather than identity, which means thinking about objectification, particularly of women, as sexual objects and as performative often. So the idea being that bisexuality in women is a way to manipulate and seduce men or for the enjoyment of men. And within bisexual men, it's different because there, there's often the assumption that, well, they're actually gay. And so it's a, a different complication that arises and there's different adversity that bisexual men face. But for women, the hypersexualization of it means that the risk for sexual assault, as you said, and stalking and intimate partner violence are almost double what heterosexual women experience. And they're still a lot higher than what lesbian women experience. And when you look at support services afterwards as well, so if you look at research on therapy after sexual assault and different LGBT plus identities, the therapy for bisexual people is massively underperforming. Basically, there's a higher risk of being sexually assaulted, and then the support services afterwards are worse, and the victim blaming are worse because of the hypersexualization. So it's all part of the same thing, and it has just vast consequences that sort of cascade into really negative things. And I, I know we're talking about the negatives. I love being bi. It's just that there are these negative aspects that... In some ways, it's the societal reaction. It's not my experience of bisexuality that's the problem. It's how society reacts to it. And that's why talking about it, being here with you, talking about it is so important because that's the only way we can deconstruct that cascade of horror. 
And I think it's really important that other people outside of the bisexual community listen to this and understand this and like pay attention to the fact that this is actually a really huge issue. I mean, my dating history is an absolute mess. We won't get into that. But like, <laughs> I have had people say to me things like, you know, oh, I'll turn you straight or something like that. Cishet men saying that to me. It's really jarring and really difficult. You know, they say it as almost a joke and it's really difficult to then move away from that comment. That's a small comment in comparison to the millions of other things that could happen to people. And it's just, it's outrageous. And I truly believe that, yeah, conversations and people listening and finally paying attention, reading your book, learning more about bisexuality will really help open these doors of discussion and help hopefully minimize any kind of harm and violence that people feel. And the, it'll turn you straight or I'll turn you straight kind of rhetoric, unfortunately. I, I mean, in the book, I have a whole chapter on human rights abuses against queer people honing in on the specific risk factors for bisexual people. And I mean, it's absolutely shocking, which unfortunately, anyone who knows how LGBT plus people are treated globally will unfortunately be familiar with some of it. But I think the extent of it, I was I was shocked. And one thing I, that also shocked me that I didn't know about is not only that in asylum processes, it's extra difficult to prove that you're bi. So in a courtroom, when you have to prove that you're bi, how do you do that? And that the obstacles are even higher for bisexual people because basically the assumption is, well, just go be straight. You're basically straight anyway. And for what you were saying, if I'll turn you straight, the practice of corrective rape which is a practice, uh, human rights abuse, where women are basically forced to have sex with men or raped um, to make them straight. And it's exactly that thought. So the extreme manifestations of these thoughts, which seem like, haha, joke, or haha, like this is like a bit uncomfortable, but it's not a big deal. They are a big deal because there are extreme manifestations of them that make them a big deal. Exactly. And, and those comments almost validate that subconsciously the person is validating those extreme behaviors but i wanted to talk about uh, asylum seekers as well because like having to prove your sexuality as you said i mean that that can lead to further violence and, and we know that we know that from like you know people having to be like sent to uh countries where they could face violence or just having to like go through the process is violent itself what can or should we do to be a part of stopping this from happening so there are lgbt plus charities that help to bridge the gaps, so help to pro provide services and legal support for queer people who are, for example, moving to the US or the UK. Honestly, it's so depressing, the literature on the lack of acceptance of bi asylum seekers, that I don't know the answer. I think the main answer is educating people who review, who make asylum decisions. They need to understand that bisexuality is a real thing, that it's just as unreasonable a request to say, just go be straight to a bi person as it is to say that to a gay person. Because right now there is a knowledge gap where research has found that people basically kind of get that it's unreasonable to tell a gay person or a lesbian person to just go home and pretend to be someone totally different. and uh, But they do not have that for bisexuality. And so again, there's a, an education need there to educate legislators, educate people who are making asylum decisions to know that and to understand that and to appreciate that. So I think that's a critical step. But as for sort of services, in, until we have that, until asylum decision makers understand that, bi people aren't getting through, at least not based on their sexuality or based on being persecuted for their sexual orientation. 
And legislation, as always, is an absolute mess and a lot of work always needs to be done in that case. But yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's got a lot to do with education. And visibility. Yeah. And that's the downside of like, there's not much we can do (laughs) except for educate people. But the biggest thing you can do as an individual is if you are bi or if you're a bi ally, I mean, you can repost bi content. You can highlight some of these issues that we're talking about. You can share books or articles on bisexuality during Pride Month, for example, as a sort of reason to share it. And if you are bi, if you can be safely visible, don't underestimate the importance of that for the global landscape around queer rights, because it's much harder to dehumanize people if you know them. And so if you say, oh, my son is by, oh, you know, it's much harder to then go and vote for homophobic policies. It's much harder to then say, oh, these people are so different from me that it's fine to persecute them. It's fine to treat them as less than. And so visibility, it really does still hugely matter, not just for you, but for younger versions of you, for the next generation, for people in countries and and even here who don't have a voice who aren't able to do that. So be visible if you can. Please come out bisexuals and pansexuals (laughs) and plurisexuals. We need you. The fight is ongoing. (laughs) Please come join us in being visible if you can. (laughs) This is a call to you all. Please come out. (laughs) Come out, come out, please. (laughs) Join us. It's lovely here. I mean, we're talking about... It is lovely. There's negatives. There's also so many positives in finding your community and finding people like you and finding the support. Absolutely. And there's negatives to everything. You know, it's just, you know, a lot of the times they need to be discussed, but the positives are beautiful. The positives are like magical. And I think the more bisexual people we have or people in the bisexual umbrella, the brighter the world will be. Okay, so I wanted to ask you specifically, because I found this really fascinating about the Darwinian paradox and its conflict with bisexuality, kind of like the concept of same sex sexual behavior not resulting in reproduction, leading to extinction, and just the chaos behind all of that. And I, as I was reading it, I just, my mind was just like, what the hell? What what are people doing? (laughs) Do you want to explain a bit more about the Darwinian paradox and how it kind of conflicts with sexuality? So in the chapter that I have in by on the animal kingdom and genetics, I go on the hunt for the bi gene because I basically had assumed, because it's almost dogma, right? In not just the queer community, but in general, that you're sort of, you're born this way. And so you're sort of genetically predisposed and it won't change, which actually, if you think about it, doesn't hugely make sense because there is also sexual fluidity and people do change whom they're attracted to. But that's also something we often undervalue societally and individually. So it's like bisexuality, maybe like half a gay gene. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> if, if there's a genetic predisposition, what is bisexuality? So that's something that's always bugged me a little bit. And then I went on the hunt for the, the gay gene and the bi gene. And turns out it's not a thing. Um, and it was massively overreported at the time. And the people who published the article, which led to us talking about a gay gene at all, have since been like, oh, we're so sorry. <laughs> we wish we'd never talked about it that way. It was uh, oversimplifying. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they're just like, they're so upset with how it's been taken and just that people have run with it. Anyway, so in that, then I'm like, okay, so if it's not genetic, Maybe there's some clues in the animal kingdom. And in the animal kingdom and in evolutionary psychology, when I was doing my undergrad, actually, like way back in the day, um, I was learning that basically most behaviors 
are optimized for reproduction. That's one of the key things, right? Is if it doesn't increase the survival of your genes, what's the point of that behavior? Which in hindsight is nonsense, but there is a piece of that with sexual behavior that has always been like, well, this is why it's really curious that anybody's homosexual. And so it's the sort of throwing up your hands and being like, well, maybe they're good aunts and uncles and they keep their other offspring alive. Or there's been all these like speculations. And it's basically just invisibilized the fact that a lot of people aren't exclusively homosexual either. And so there's a lot of bisexuality and there's a lot of bisexuality throughout the animal kingdom. And so if you look at giraffes, if you look at sheep, if you look at starfish, if you look basically any creature you can think of, there is behavioral bisexuality that's been observed. And the reason for that, so now I'm coming all the way around, the reason for this being interesting is that it turns the question of why does homosexual behavior exist in the animal kingdom up on its head? Because then the question is, why not? And the why not is because as long as you occasionally have sex that leads to offspring, it doesn't really matter what you're doing the rest of the time. Most of us aren't most of the time having sex for reproductive sake. And so it's like, as long as you have a couple of babies, it's kind of fine. Obviously, also, if you have no babies, it's fine. But in terms of the genetic arguments of reproduction. And so bisexual behavior is natural and possibly the default sexuality because it maximizes reproductive chances as the, <laughs> as the new evolutionary theorists who are critiquing and queering the study of animals are suggesting. Oh, nice. I like that. I like that. I remember um, this is a long time ago. I can't remember what year it was, but I went to the sex museum in New York. I actually just stumbled across it and just walked in and I was like, there's uh, sex toys everywhere. I love this place. <laughs> and there were these really weird, huge sculptures of animals uh, and they were showing all the different positions that animals have sex. And I just thought it was really fascinating that someone sat there and created all these sculptures. But within that as well, there was a lot of homosexual sex that they showcased as well. I think it was chimpanzees, lesbian chimpanzees and stuff. And there was dolphins as well. And there were some other ones. I didn't expect to come across this. But as I was walking around, I was just like, wow, the animals are really gay. Like, they're really gay. I love it. I absolutely love it. But it's we need to be careful in how we talk about it, because just like we can invisibilize bisexuality and in the animal kingdom by, for example, calling chimps lesbian, where it's like, we also do that in history. So when you look at history books, quite often it's like, oh, there's, we've observed or someone wrote about having a same-sex relationship with somebody. And we ignore the fact that they were also married to a woman, that they were also, that they also had relationships or sex with other genders and suddenly they're it's like oh they're gay they're gay well we found one <laughs> which i can understand a desire to find your connection to your ancestors find connection to animals but if you assume that any indication of homosexual behavior means that they are predominantly or exclusively homosexual and the heterosexual stuff or the mixed sex stuff is a lie or forced or something else, then you also erase bisexuality. So that's why I like talking about behavioral bisexuality in animals. Just like in history books, you could also say they were gay or bi <laughs> if there's suggestions or uh, proof or evidence of sexual behavior with multiple genders. Yeah, very true. Because I remember reading it saying, for example, when I said chimpanzee lesbian, I remember reading it and then that just stuck in my head and I never questioned that. Until you've just said that now. 
Thank you for educating me. Of course. <laughs> I had to be educated too. I mean, I, I did a whole master's in queer history just to be educated. I was like, I know nothing. All I know is I know nothing about this. Because my PhD is in criminal psychology. And turns out, unfortunately, there is some overlap because of the crime aspects of the crimes committed against bisexual people and the human rights abuses and things. But other than that, I didn't know anything. And so um, Goldsmiths University helped me, held me by the hand and was like, look, <laughs> look at all the queers. I was like, oh, show me the queers. So how did you get into it? How did you get into that then? Like, what was your, what was the passion that drove you behind it? The passion that drove me behind writing this book. Writing the book, doing all your research, being such a big advocate for bisexual people. Maybe I was just frustrated with answering the questions. Um, and I wanted to instead shove a book at people. And it's like, what about all that? Read it. <laughs> Read a book. Have this book. I'm, I'm done with your questions. Because I think every bi person who's out becomes a bit of a like inadvertent bi activist. Because <laughs> we're answering everybody's questions all the time. And uh, that gets repetitive and uh, annoying. But uh, that's, that's a negative way of saying it. I mean, the, the more positive way of saying it, I was writing my second book. So I came out of my second book, um, on which is called Making Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. And it's all about criminal psychology and trying to empathize and humanize people who do bad things and try to say, what could lead me to do these bad things? And in it, I talk about also LGBT plus demonization. So basically other people calling people who are queer evil and how that happens and why it happens, etc. And I realized that I, at that point, I'm talking about visibility or writing about it and I wasn't out yet. And I was like, wow, I'm such a hypocrite. So I came out and that was really the impetus to have a long conversation with my editor as to whether I'm allowed to do that. I genuinely, I had like a two hour conversation with my editor, whether as a scientist, I was allowed to come out as bi. Really? Wow. Would it ruin my career? Would it ruin my credibility? Would it lead to hypersexualization? I already have trolls. Am I going to have more? Are they going to support me if I get more? And so we had that conversation and we both decided, okay, let's do it. And then um, when I realized that I have so much to say about bisexuality and it just opened up this like... I have things to say. <laughs> and then I also realized I have lots of questions and I don't know the answers. And then I wrote a book about it. One of the things I also want to accomplish with this book is to really give people a place to explore their own sexuality, whatever it is, in more depth. So it encourages you to ask questions about how you love, whom you love, how you want to love, and how to structure relationships. And I think it's something that is really a perennial topic for all of us and that most of us haven't really thought that deeply about but could benefit from doing so so it's definitely not just a book for bisexual people it's a book for everybody I love that and it's so important and I'm so glad you wrote the book I'm so glad that I had this conversation with you as well thank you Julia that was Dr. Julia Shaw, author of Bi, The Hidden Culture, History and Science of Bisexuality which is now available from Canongate you've been listening to Intelligence Squared I've been Sharon Daliwell. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening, and early access to. Currently available via Apple Podcasts, you just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.